0: Before we uh, see it, let's uh, remain standing and read the Word of God that will be um, the basis for the sermon this morning, and it's from the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter one, uh, chapter two, beg your pardon, from verse 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my fathers a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about men, For he himself knew what was in man, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Friends, uh, many years ago, I, um, my wife and I, we went to Beijing for the first time, you know, in China, obviously, to meet with the faculty members of Tsinghua University School of Management. And then we took a few days off after that, knowing that it was approaching their national day, first of, of, of October. So we were quite excited to see what's gonna happen in the main city, uh, in the main road of the city of Beijing. But what we did not anticipate is the sheer size of the crowd. It's almost like every person from various cities in China, they went to Beijing. So this huge road in the middle of uh, Beijing was just filled with people. You know, it was really hard to squeeze through and, and get to, uh, from one place to, to the next. So unlike me, the Jews in Jesus' day, they knew exactly what to do expect when they went from all over the Roman Empire to the holy city of God, to Jerusalem for this very important festival called the Passover. Now Passover is one of the three main festivals of the Jews. And they gathered every year to commemorate one thing, the night that the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites whenever there was blood on the doorposts. And after that, they were freed from the slavery in Egypt. So that's what they commemorated every year with a great sense of anticipation as they went through the Mount uh, um, Olive and looking down, they would see this panoramic uh, 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 holy city and uh, this huge Jerusalem temple in the middle. And if you uh, do not know the Jerusalem temple, its size is quite big. It's almost like the largest uh, uh, football or footy uh, uh, stadium today. So if, if you were here last week, last week we saw Jesus in Cana at a wedding party turning water into wine keeping the party going, but today in Jerusalem, he crashed the party, right, completely different. He actually did something awful, that's what a lot of people think. He chased people away, he drove people mad, crashing the national festive event called the Passover. So I want to set the scene first so that we can understand accurately what's going on behind the cleansing, what traditionally known as the cleansing of the temple. That's that's my first uh, point. And we're going to look at uh, the cleansing of the temple and what is behind all that from uh, in the next slide, first 1, uh, 13 to uh, 18, I think. So if you look at uh, these verses, you would, you would know that there, there were livestock, there were money changes. What, what's with all this? Now friends, when, when these Jews came to uh, the holy city of God in Jerusalem, they were required to sacrifice an animal. Now people from all over the place gathered in Jerusalem for the festival and it's not convenient, it's not efficient to them if they had to bring the animals from all over the place to Jerusalem. I mean, imagine uh, having your oxen and your pigeons, you know, uh, with you traveling so many kilometers. It's just not efficient. So that's why when they came to Jerusalem, there were merchants who sold these animals for them to buy for the sacrifice at the temple. And secondly, there was this temple tax that they had to pay for every uh, Jew who uh, was 20 years old and older. And the temple tax had to be paid in certain coins, right? And that's why people coming from all over the place, they brought their coins with them and they had to exchange the coin to the one that is accepted at the temple of Christ. God. And that's why we saw there were money changes. And if you can imagine, they would stack all the coins on the table and when Jesus did what he did, all the coins were uh, all over the place and these money changes scrambled to grab all those coins that were on the uh, floor. Now the question is, why was Jesus angry? Because I think when we understand that question, we can accurately answer the same question, should we have a coffee machine at the bank? right? Is that the same as what we saw here? Why was Jesus angry? Because it's fine for these merchants to sell the animals. It's fine for these money changers to provide Uh, the service so that they can exchange their coins for the temple tax. There's nothing wrong with that because all they did was to help people to make sacrificial worship to God. See, Jesus was not angry because of the proficient of such services. He was angry and rightfully so because where the service was delivered. It's not the what, it's the where. That's something that we want to uh, focus on. And in, in, in the next slide, you see kind of a panoramic view of the uh, temple. Uh, it's, it's hard to, um, if I have three hours, I can uh, walk you through to uh, uh, each, each and every corner. So there are four different courts. You can see the courts of the Gentiles and the court of uh, women and the court of the Israelites and then the court of priests. So the temple of God, was organized around those uh, 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 different courts. Now, the animal merchants used to set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley, which you can't see from that picture there, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So it's outside the temple complex. But slowly, they they moved closer and closer to the temple complex and now they occupied the court of the Gentiles. That's where they sold the animals and did the money exchange. And you know why they did that? Because they had this usual contempt for the Gentiles. So the Jews had uh, thought, let's just use the court of the Gentiles for our business transaction. So the place of prayer for all nations, that's what the court of the Gentiles uh, were meant to be, now smelled like a barnyard. Now sounds like a cattle market. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer that people could go there and do, now there's a billowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, instead of holy adoration and heartfelt petition, there is noisy commerce. See, that's why this is different than our coffee cart because we place it at the back, not right here in the middle, and we finish right before the service, not in the middle of the service that you get distracted by the noise of the machine and so on. So what made Jesus angry was the fact that there were distractions that will take the attention of the people of God away from him and into uh, this hustling and bustling of the market. And that's why he said, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? And the Greek word used for market here is emporium. We have a mall here called the Emporium, next, uh, not far from here. But Jesus basically said, you have turned this sanctuary of God into an emporium. And he made a whip, a whip of cords. Now, when Jesus uh, drove these businesses out of the temple courts, he did not do it in a fit of anger. He was angry, but it wasn't an uncontrollable anger. Because you, you see, the whip of cords, they are made of grains. They're just made of reeds. You know, you, you can't really hurt people with it. You can't really hurt an animal with it, right? It, it's, just, it's just a reed, uh, you know, a, a bunch of uh, grass-like uh, properties. So it's not made of um, um, leather. It's not made of rubber, let alone metal. So it won't hurt anyone, actually. So much so that uh, one commentator said that it is clear it's not so much the physical force of Jesus that emptied the courts, but it's the moral force that Jesus showed. It was forceful morally, but nothing true, nothing harsh. So Jesus was angry because of where the services were delivered. But secondly, Jesus was angry because of the empty routines that people experienced whenever they came to this uh, Um, sacrificial worship. All the confusion and all of that noise and all of that clamor, all they can do is to turn around, they slay the animals, everyone bows down, and that's it. You know, this is worship in a casual fashion. It's like a lot of people today, they drive up to the church, they grab a sacrifice, they do some worship, singing some hymns, and then they will get home home before their favorite TV shows began. What Jesus had in mind, when you lay down an animal for sacrifice, you should be thinking, this should be me. Instead of this animal, this should be me because I'm the one who is guilty. The justice of God, the rightful anger of God should have been on me because I do not love God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength and with all my mind. I don't love my neighbor as myself. So why is it not me that is slain, but this animal? Why am I spared instead? But they never thought of that anymore because worship became something so mechanical, lacking any substance. What they did became a shallow routine that did not have any effect whatsoever in their lives. Now, that's very similar to a lot of Christians who come on Sunday to worship God. You see, that's what made Jesus agitated, furious with how empty our worship to God is. So, for Christian friends, I want to ask you, if you are busy serving the Lord in all sorts of capacities on Sunday, here is a message to you. Are you too busy to serve God that you no longer care about God himself that you are serving? Because everything becomes mechanical. You just want to suppress your guilt by coming to church and do a bit of service to him, but there is no heartfelt contrition. The disciples remember what was written in the, uh, in the Psalm um, book of Psalm 69, to be precise, the seal of your house consumed me. Look what, what, what consumed Jesus, the love for his father's house. Let me ask you this, what are you zealous for? Because everybody is consumed by something. What is it that consumes your life? What consumes Jesus is the love for his father's house. And that's why he did what he did. But what consumes us? Some of us are consumed with perhaps alcohol. You think you are consuming alcohol, but it's actually consuming you. Other people might be consumed with sex. It occupies their mind nearly 24-7 every single day, seven days a week. It became a slavery, and they couldn't get their minds out of it. Some people are consumed with money. From the minute they wake up, they think, what can I do today to increase my investment, my asset? How can I work smarter so that I can get more promotion and bigger pay. Some are so consumed with wealth. Some are consumed with fame or relationships. When you are in codependency, that you want to make sure that whatever you do will please the other person so that that person will always love you. You are consumed with the acceptance, with the love, of that person. Friends, let us living our lives consume with the correct thing, and that is the house of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the work of the Lord, that his glory be seen by people who are yet going to be uh, knowing him and and seeing that glory. So that's that's what it's uh, uh, behind the the cleansing of the temple. We're going to look at the second point now, the building of the new temple from verse 18 to 22. The building of the temple. Note that in uh, uh, verse 18, when the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They never said that what Jesus did was illegal. Now that is an interesting fact, is it not? Because they knew their scripture. They knew that someone will come and purify the house of God. They knew when they read, for example, Malachi 3, 1 to 3, that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would have a passion and a zeal for holiness. So that's why they only ask, What authority, what sign can you give us? They never questioned what Jesus did. They just ask, What authority you have that you can do all this in a completely different question. And then again, we hear the cryptic answer that Jesus gave, just like last week in Cana. And his cryptic, cryptic answer was, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. What is he talking about? Why is he talking about his death? Why is he talking about his body? Why is he talking about his resurrection? Here's the point. They were saying, how can you did what you did as if you own this temple? And Jesus said, essentially, I do not merely own the temple. I am the temple. I am the final temple. He was talking about himself as God's temple on earth. So friend, this, this uh, understanding of the temple of God is important if you want to understand The Bible accurately, there are various themes that you can find right from the beginning of uh, Genesis uh, down to uh, the book of Revelation. And one of the themes is actually the temple of God and you see the creation temple uh, in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 when God created Eden as the center, the sanctuary, the temple where God dwells with his people. And obviously, sin was the reason why Adam and Eve were expelled from their dwelling place of God. And only by the grace of God, He provided a means by which that communion between the holy God and unholy people can be restored. So the temple, the building in Jerusalem, more than anything else, symbolized the covenant promise of God among His people. And that is a great interest to the Apostle John who wrote this letter. So in the beginning, we saw, in fact, a few weeks ago, in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, he presented Jesus as the incarnate temple. So the incarnation meant that Jesus became the temple of God. In the incarnation, the enfleshment of the eternal word and glory of God dwells among men. He tabernacled with us. But not only that, not only in the incarnation, but also in the resurrection of Jesus. Consumed with the seal of God's house as messenger of his covenant, Jesus came to refine and purify. And that's why he drove all these money changers and the merchants out of the courts of Uh, God's house. So the true temple is Jesus. It's not the stones, it's not uh, the buildings, but it's the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. He will build the temple in three days in which he would enter into death and emerge as its conqueror. So the glory of incarnation would be eclipsed by the glory of resurrection. So Jesus Christ is our true temple. He was promised. He was then destroyed on the cross, but obviously that temple, the true temple was rebuilt just like the Solomon's temple in Jerusalem on the third day when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So essentially, Jesus said to us, if you believe you can come into the presence of a holy God carrying all these bloody sacrifices, you know, using the pigeons and the oxen and so on for atoning your sins, Jesus now is telling us, I am the temple, I am the priest, I am the sacrifice. And he said to the people of his day, if you think you can go and get close to God, by going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and visiting God's temple, know that you can't really get so close to God because, you know what, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But now Jesus said, I replace that temple, I replace that high priest, I replace the sacrifices. As the temple, I am God's presence on earth. As the priest... I offered the perfect sacrifice and I am the sacrifice offered with my own death on the cross. So Jesus is our true, final, and sufficient temple, priest, and sacrifice at the same time. Now, the disciples did not understand that and that's why in verse 22, you can see that Finally, they understood when Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. Now they can say, oh, that's why. That's why he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. This is what he meant when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But they did not understand at the time. So what what are the implications? Because I know this all sounds very theoretical, right? What, what were the implications? What are the implications for us today? I want to speak to our Christian friends and those of you who are not uh, yet believers. So let me talk to our Christian friends. There are two uh, implications there for uh, each one of you. If you look at First uh, 23 to 25, It says, uh, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name because they saw the signs. But Jesus did not believe them. So a lot of people believe in him because of the sign, but Jesus did not believe them. Friends, Jesus can read the innermost thoughts that you have like an open book. And he knew by looking at our hearts, he did not trust us, even though we claim we believe him. See, a a true Christian is not just believing in Jesus. A true Christian is someone in whom Jesus believes as well. But here is the good news. Jesus might say to you today, each one of you who claim to be Christians, I know you. I know what you think when you wake up in the morning. I know what you have in mind when you go do whatever you do every single day. And I really don't trust you. I can't really trust myself in you. But I still love you. That's what he said. I don't trust you yet but I do love you and that's why I died for your sins. Not because you are trustworthy, but I died for your sins to make you trustworthy. How, how did he do that? Friends, we learn today that Jesus had a zeal for the purity of his father's house. And you know what? Today, when you are united, with Christ by faith, you are now his body. His body is not this building, so-called church, but the Holy Spirit of God now lives in you. You are now God's temple. Ephesians 4.22 said, you are the holy temple of the Lord. In Jesus Christ, you are also being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you are now the temple of God. And guess what? Jesus has the same zeal for the house of the Lord that is for you. He wants you to be more holy now. He wants you to be more loving, to be more righteous, to be more like Him. That's what consumes Jesus now. He prayed for us as our intercessor and He wants you to be changed, to be refined. And that's why sometimes he put you in all kinds of troubles, on all kinds of trials because he wanted to remove impurities in your life. He essentially is saying to us, I will purge you of anything that distracts you from the pure and exclusive devotion on me. See, there are many things that are good in our lives, you know, like like the sacrifices and the currency exchange. All those things are good, and we too have a lot of things that are good in our lives. But these things suddenly become ultimate things which consume our lives. They're not sinful, they're good, but they now become too important that they actually replaces uh, replace God, things that were fine in that place, but now usurp the place of worship. Let me give you an example. You might have a nice job, a good job, and you love where you work, and then suddenly your boss asks you to do something unethical, something that is against your Belief as a Christian. Now in that particular moment, you're going to choose whether you love your job, your career, your wealth more than you love God. That's the exact moment where you can actually tell God and others whether you do love God or you do love mammon, you do love money. Or you are in a great relationship with someone and you hope that someday that person will become your wife or your husband. And everything is fine until one day that person asks you to do something that would compromise your faith. Would you choose that person or would you choose God? Friends, we are God's temple. Jesus is the host. He's not a guest. Obviously, he's not a stranger, but he's not a guest. He's the host. And, you know, a host can do everything he likes. He can knock walls down. If, if he's only a guest, then you would say you sleep on a couch and don't touch this and don't go here. You're still the master of the house. But if Jesus is the host, the owner of your life, then he will not just rearrange the furniture of your life, but he would get rid of some of the furniture of your life that he knows will distract you from loving him and serving him. Let him be the host of your life. He is now consumed with purifying you, refining you to be more like him. The second implication is for people who are still not sure if they are Christians. If you were with us last Sunday in Cana, Jesus did this miracle of turning water into wine quietly, but now in Jerusalem, he created a public disturbance. You know, at the party, he brought joy to the couple. In the temple, he brought wrath to the authorities, literally cracking the whip over the animals and driving everybody out of the temple with Anger. Now, this, this meek, lowly, and gentle Jesus suddenly became trigger happy, became harsh and seemingly cruel, Jesus. Now, you, you might ask the question, does he have multiple personality disorder? Was he schizophrenic, behaving the way he was? The answer is no and no. So what does it mean then? Well, Jesus looked different on the surface, but underneath, he is the same Lord. The winemaker is also the whip maker. The Lord of the feast is also the Lord of the whip. Now, here's the lesson for, uh, for all of us, in fact. When Jesus came into your life, on one hand, he will fill your table with the feast, but on other times, he will turn your tables and spill everything on the ground. See, that's why, as uh, our Christian friends know in this room, at times Jesus would answer your prayer, but other times he would remain silent. You feel that every time you come knocking, he opens the door and hear you, and then slam the door on your face. At times he comforts the afflicted, other times he afflicts the comforted. And you think, oh yeah, that's okay un- until <laughs> that person is you, right? And then you got confused. And that's why a lot of people do not want to come to Jesus because they think Jesus uh, has this weird personality. Sometimes he's kind, sometimes he's full of anger. But these are not two different things. These are just two different ways of expressing The same thing, if you understand this, then you'll be more ready to follow Jesus. You know why? Because he is a real God. And this is how you know you are worshiping a real God. A real God, by definition, is suffering to do whatever he wills. But a lot of people think, I I want a God according to my preferences. Now, friends, with all due respect, no one cares about what you think of God, but what is important is who God is as he reveals himself in the scripture. See, why would you treat God as any different than all the rest of reality? Let me give you a closing metaphor. It was given once by uh, a preacher. Think about When you're driving, right, down a uh, winding road, you have to make a turn almost every other second. You notice ahead, there's a sharp left turn, and then there's a cliff right uh, before you. So unless you make that sharp left turn, you're going to drive your car off the cliff. Now do you say, you know, I get tired of turning right and left, and I just don't care now. I prefer to think this road as straight, and I don't have to keep turning. Do you do that? No. Why? Well, because you know if you drive straight, you're going to uh, fall off the cliff. See, you do not submit your likes, uh, um and, and then say, I do whatever I like, but you submit your likes to the reality. You submit your life to the real shape of that road, right? If you want to stay alive, you submit your like to the shape and the reality of the road. Now, why would you treat God worse than what you do with that road? You do not make demands on that road. The road makes demands on you. Now, how do you know if your God is real or made up? A real God would disturb you. A real God would challenge your personal preferences and biases. A real God would confront your views, your habits, your expectations. A real God would transcend your cultural values and prejudices. Now, if you think God the way you like to think of God, that he's never challenging you, he's never disturbing you. He's probably not real. He's just a made-up God in your mind. To be a Christian means that you submit to Christ because he's the real deal. He's the real God and he's every right to make demands of you. Either you submit to the reality of Christ or else you're going to drive off the cliff and die. So friends, I want to invite you to come and see Jesus, to know him as who he is. Not only because of what he has done, all the miracles and good things that He has done, but because of who he is. He's the real God. So let, let's come to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word.